Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Levinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. We speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today's episode, which originally aired back in February, seems to be a favorite among listeners, despite the very rogue audio quality where we had zero production help whatsoever, but the content is pretty awesome. So I think that's what resonates with you guys. So we thought we'd air it again here today. Let me get to the guest. Jeff Dennis is, in his words, the world's only entrepreneur in residence at a law firm. He spends a ton of time in Silicon Valley and around Canada's tech scene, sniffing out what's next, helping emerging tech companies navigate the changing world of law, which in Jeff's opinion is clearly on the verge of disruption. And in this very wide-ranging talk, Jeff shares his advice about how to balance marriage with entrepreneurship, managing partnerships in business, the legal industry, of course, and what's impacting the next phase of lawyers, how to teach kids to be self-sufficient and manage their money, and a ton of other insight on starting and scaling a business. So with that intro out of the way, please enjoy this early, very grassroots conversation with Jeff Dennis. You're a lawyer by trade, and you are the world's only entrepreneur in residence at a law firm. Is that correct? Well, I think so. You know, maybe some hyperbole, but <laughs> I, I believe so. I am a lawyer. I practiced briefly a long time ago and started a business in 1989 and ran it for well over 25 years with partners. Uh, and then having sold my business or my interest in our business, uh, a number of years ago, I became uh, essentially a professional mentor and a bit of an angel investor working with early stage companies. And I'd been looking for sort of a place that was synergistic that I could hang out, do my thing and, and work with uh, an organization that, you know, would be, as I said, synergistic. And I bumped into a buddy of mine here at Faskin Martineau, which, as you may know, is one of Canada's largest and oldest and very traditional law firm. And they were sort of struggling with the question, how does big law do business with small tech? Mm-hmm. And given my background, both as lawyer and entrepreneur and having spent you know, a lot of time in the early stage space and principally tech in the latter years, um, we realized that this was sort of a a marriage made in heaven. They needed somebody to help them navigate that world, and I needed uh, a place to hang out and and do my thing. And that was five years ago. And so my role is kind of twofold. I'm um, I'm a business advisor, um, and in that case, I'm sort of talking to early stage companies about you know what's their product, who's their customer, what's the price, what's the margin, who's the competition, you know what's the team look like that's going to execute this. How much money is it going to take to get off the ground? And what's that investor look like? And maybe, you know, what kind of deal can you expect to do for the business? And then the second piece is I see myself as an intrapreneur inside a traditional organization, uh, creating a small business, offering legal services to these early stage companies on a completely different business model. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, what is in it for the law firm? I mean, to me, the job sounds super interesting. And it's something that if I were you, I'd be extremely motivated uh, every day to go to work. 
are you the gateway between uh, an established larger law firm like a Faskin and, you know, small startups? Is that what you are? Are you the bridge? Yes, very much so. So I'm very involved and I always have been in the community with lots of organizations. Uh, you know, it's been my sort of philanthropic thing is to help early stage entrepreneurs. Uh, obviously, I, I my business, we finance them. So there was, a, you know, there was a monetary opportunity that came from it. But I've been a volunteer on all sorts of community organizations and um, and really uh, I'm out there uh, in the ecosystem between here in Toronto and Waterloo. And um, so, yes, I am that bridge. But also, I think there's an aspect of disruption that's going on inside law firms too. You know, just like every other business, there are, uh, there's technology and new business models and other things that are nipping at the heels of these traditional firms. So as much as I'm a bridge to these clients and this, this world that they're historically unfamiliar with, um, I'm also helping them sort of navigate and experiment with different business models which you know work for me and hopefully might be applicable to other areas of practice. Our firm, for example, recently hired a chief innovation officer, um, mm -hmm. which I think is also recognition of the fact that the world is changing for lawyers. So it's not just tech companies. I think every business is a tech business today. Every business is subject to the risk of disruption and, and, and the effect of technology, and lawyers are no exception. So what's so so you mentioned disruption, and I think that's a that's a big theme. Um, I want to dive into that a little bit deeper. So in the world of law, uh, as it relates to traditional corporate uh, legal services, what is the biggest threat? Like, what do you see coming down the pipeline that could likely be the biggest disruptor to that industry? Well, I think it's being attacked from all directions. I mean, you know, big clients are, you know, figuring out that they need to keep a cap on costs and are asking for RFPs, you know, and and law firms are bidding on work all of a sudden instead of, you know, having these long-term relationships and just charging by the hour and rendering an invoice and just getting paid. So there's pressure there. There's mm -hmm. also technology that's being developed that, you know, there's a Canadian company called Ross, which partnered with IBM's Watson, and it does legal research, and it can do legal research faster, like tens of times, thousands of times faster than any articling student or associate or what have you. You know, we have developed uh, something internally called ViaFaskin, and it, it, it automates the uh, company formation process. So a client can go online, fill out a questionnaire, push a button, it, and it generates 50 legal documents that they need to incorporate, organize the company, and some basic documents that most of these early-stage companies do. I showed it to our law clerks to get feedback and try to understand, you know, what are we missing and, and that sort of thing, typical MVP, you know, approach to get feedback. And I'm riding the elevator down with the clerks, and they're, you know, rubbing their hands with glee saying, wow, this is going to make our job so much easier. And I'm sitting there in the back of the elevator kind of keeping to myself, saying to myself, no, this is going to put you out of business and take your job yeah. away. Yeah. And so it's happening to law clerks. It's happening to lawyers. It's happening. I mean, when I, I like to say sometimes that I'm the Austin Powers of, of law, 
because I left another big law firm in 1989 and I joined this one in 2012. And in that time you know, span, there's been huge changes. Yeah. I mean, we were using IBM Selectric typewriters with whiteout and you know carbon paper. Yeah. And today, you know, it's a different world, obviously. So, so you mentioned this program, Ross. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my interpretation of that technology is that it, it could render the function of articling completely redundant. Um, am I correct with that or no? Well, um, it's not so much that it renders it redundant. It just means that a lot of the tasks that those people, you know, those kids did, you know, are now automated. So, you know, there's less demand for articling students. Um, in response to that, the Law Society in Ontario created a program um, that, you know, enables people to get to qualify for articles, but without working in a law firm. They, they do it through Ryerson, I believe. So... Mm -hmm. You know, there's pressure everywhere. I mean, Ryerson's opening a new law school, which I don't know where these lawyers are going to get jobs, um, but I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about it. You know, there's a, there's a book uh, by Susskind called The End of Lawyers and, and talks about exactly what I'm saying. Uh, obviously, he's done a deeper dive, uh, but it's sort of, in my view, standard standard reading for anybody thinking about going to law school. I mean, it sits, it's on the corner of our managing partner's desk. So, mm -hmm. you know, they're aware of it here. We hired a CIO. So, you know, people are aware that there, there's big changes coming and happening as we speak. Yeah. So, so you've got, you've got kids, Jeff, correct? Yes. Um, so, so if you had, I don't know if this is true for your children or not, but, um, you know, I've got very young kids. So if you were going to give a piece of advice, to this next generation, say, of, of younger millennials that are coming through thinking about a career in law, would you encourage that? Or would you tell them, you know, you, you better take a second look at this industry. It's not what it was, you know, over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Well, I get that all the time. My niece is off to law school in the fall. And, um, you know, my advice to young lawyers is to really understand the trends, right? Like figure out which areas of practice are going to be automated, disrupted, and which areas of practice are going to still require that human touch. You know, I think, for example, the world is going to gravitate towards what I call bespoke law, which mm -hmm. is, you know, large transactions, complex you know, structures, multiple jurisdictions, tax complications, you know, ownership, regulation, you know, all that stuff is going to need a pretty smart lawyer to help sort of put the puzzle together. Um, but that lawyer may not need as many lawyers as they have on their team today because some of the subsidiary functions will get done by machine or by, you know, auto, uh, artificial intelligence or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. So then the other side of it is what I call commodity law, where, you know, it's and we've seen it already, although it was manual. If you look at sort of lawyers that do house deals and, you know, specialize in residential real estate or condo closings and stuff like that, like they've automated it. They started way back when with clerks and, and paralegals. And now it's going to become even more automated as the clerks and paralegals get disrupted by machines and computers and automated intelligence uh, yeah. or artificial intelligence. I mean, if you're the, the smart person uh, who's got that bespoke in intellect and can 
give that high level strategy and advice. I think there's always going to be room for that kind of person. But, you know, if you're always dreamed to be a real estate lawyer doing mortgages and house deals, like uh, it's going to be a tough sled. Right. Yeah. So I think you got to figure out where, what that vertical is and, and what what the trend is for that vertical. And there's some obvious things that are you know clearly being disrupted. It's interesting. I had a cup of coffee a couple years ago now. So maybe it's changed with the dean at my law school. And he was probably making the rounds, you know, the usual sort of fundraising for all the alumni. We had an interesting cup of coffee. And so I asked him, like, what are you doing? Like, what kind of research, what kind of education are you doing around this, this, this issue, the changing nature in the practice of law? And the answer was nothing. Um, they were f focused, you know, legal research to them was, you know, studying case law and trends and philosophy around, you know, what legal principles and, and not, you know, trying to understand how technology is changing the nature of the practice that they're graduating people into. It's an industry that's that's almost ripe for disruption. Uh, it's been an established industry f for so many years. You know, the fees are, are sometimes, you know, too astronomical for small businesses to consider. And so they're operating oftentimes in the gray. I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about startups as it relates to law. But how are you guys adapting as a larger firm helping small startups, small businesses with legal services that are affordable, that a small business can stomach and pay for in the early days? I was a client yeah. for 25 years. I you know, was involved in other industries and sold other goods and services and financed them and saw a lot in my career. So I brought a very different perspective. And, and, and my approach was, I guess, very client focused, you know, what does the client need? What do they, what, what can they afford? How do we make it work for them? And then try to figure out how we make it work for the law firm. And so what we've done is our sort of flagship product is something we call our startup program. And it's a, it's a SaaS model, or I like to call it a LAS model, lawyers as a service. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a 12 month membership and it costs $2,000 for the 12 months. So yep. and they pay it monthly on their credit card, direct you know uh, credit. But what we do for them is we either register a trademark for them in Canada, or we incorporate and organize a company. We also give them some basic legal templates, an NDA, which you know helps them keep their secret recipes secret, and uh, an intellectual property assignment so that they can collect up any existing intellectual property from other friends and buddies and whoever, you know, help them create their website, their logo, their name, the app, whatever, and collect all that up and, and put it into the company. Then they get two hours with an intellectual property lawyer to, to, on a strategic level. You know, what do you have? How to protect it? What's it going to cost? What jurisdiction? What's the best strategy? And then they get two hours a month with anybody uh, to talk about anything. And so that is a pretty, you know, if you do the math, it's like 26 hours. The average lawyer around here probably charges $500 an hour, maybe more. So, you know, it's $26,000 of notional value for 2000 bucks, which yeah. we finance over 12 months. So pretty good deal. 
I think the program itself, I mean, to me, it sounds like, you know, it's very good value. You talk about uh, getting incorporation, getting incorporated, um, the NDAs and, and all of the other templates that come with starting a business from scratch at $2,000. It sounds to me like really good value. Um, is it also, are, are you guys playing the long game? I mean, is it of interest to you either personally or as a professional with Faskin? Is it of interest when a really um, unique business model comes along, is it of interest to you to make an investment in the business, either as a partner or a, a silent shareholder of some kind, or is that off the table? Historically, what happens is law firms run up big bill, or you know, these small companies run up big bills with law firms, and then they can't pay, so then they offer shares, <clears throat> which is sort of taking you know, the most risky companies in, in your portfolio of investment. Um, so that that's not a pretty, not a very good model. Law firms have a challenge with uh, taking equity because we are uh, fiduciaries. We have uh, obligations opposite our regulator, the law society. Um, we can't have be in a conflict of interest when we provide advice. Yeah. So um, it, it happens and, and it can it can happen. But we tread very carefully because as soon as there's some sort of dispute, then we have to back away. Um, all the parties would have to consent for us to be an investor. We're actually wrestling with that question now because we are interested. We see these opportunities. We say, gee, everybody's getting rich but us. Why don't we play the game too? And we look at, you know, I spent, I go down to Silicon Valley twice a year to help our clients uh, network with other law firms, talk to venture capital investors, et cetera. And one of the things that we've done is talk to sort of other law firms in the Valley and ask them, you know, what are the best practices? So, you know, Cooley and Fenwick and Wilson Sassini and, and others have been kind enough to, to give us some insight into their best practices and what seems to go on and what we're considering is perhaps putting together a voluntary fund of, of partners who kick in whatever amount of money they're comfortable with and, and, and then invest alongside perhaps some of our VC clients, uh, whether it be our own uh, company clients or, or not, and uh, take advantage of the fact that we're, you know, we're seeing these opportunities pretty early and, uh, you know, uh, and take advantage of that. You're right on the front lines, right? I mean, you are in many ways, interfacing with very, very interesting startups and interesting technologies out of the gate almost before anybody else gets to see them, right? Because yes, when you're absolutely. building a foundation, right, you're building, these companies are building a foundation from the ground up. Legal is a big component of that foundation. And so they come to you and you probably see a lot of innovative business models before even VCs or other angels see them. Um, when you, when you are, when, when you're interfacing with some of these companies, what is the biggest issue? Would you say that, that, that are facing these startups? Is it funding or is it something else? Well, they think it's funding. They think money solves everything. You, if, if this doesn't answer the question, you'll re-ask it. But, um, the, you know, the six, what I want to attack it is to, to kind of look at what are the success factors. I'm almost like a VC because we're investing in these companies, at least in terms of our time and resources. And for 2000 bucks, as we've said, it's, you know, it's a pretty good deal. So I don't want to just bet on every 
horse. We got to try and figure out which of these horses have a, you know, a, a chance. And so for me, like the number one factor, and there's others too, but the number one factor is the entrepreneur and the team. You know, do I believe that these people can execute this plan? Do I believe that they have the, the, the expertise, the knowledge, the relationships, the integrity, the uh, entrepreneurial spirit and, you know, no quit attitude? Do I, you know, do I believe that they can do that? And if I do, uh, we'll take a bet on them and, and bring them in our program. Now, How do you assess that? How do you know? Is it a gut, is it, well, is it a gut feeling? Is it look, instinct? I mean, ultimately, it's instinct. But, you know, you look at track record. It's tough for kids coming out of university. You know, you go to the DMZ and they're, you know, 19-year-old kids working at a computer and have never had a real job. And, you know, so it's hard to know with that type of company or client. But you know, if somebody's had success in the past or they come from an industry, so they have industry expertise or, you know, those are kind of the, the things that, that I look for. Um, it's people. And, and, and I think it's fair to say that VCs at the end of the day invest in people that, yeah, the, there's flavor of the month right now. Everybody's hot on fintech and blockchain and artificial intelligence. And if you've got one of those companies, they'll certainly take a meeting, but deciding which of the opportunities they'll invest in. Yeah, they're going to look at the product and the market and the barriers to entry and the competition and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, if they don't believe these people can do it, they're just not going to invest in them. So that's that's number one. I mean, there's lots of other factors, but it, and it is an instinctive thing. I mean, I've, I've got a guy that I'm working with now that I think I made a mistake with <laughs> and I'm, I'm feeling regret uh, because I misjudged him. So sometimes you're wrong. Well, why and do you so, say? Why do you say that? What, what did? Can you? You don't have to share uh, any confidential information, but why do you say that you think you took a wrong bet? Well, because he's focused. We're he, he's just been abusive of my people um, mm -hmm. on on turning around the the work. His expectations are crazy, and he's just been not nice. And I. It, I just wonder if he's not nice to his lawyers, what's he going to be like to his customers, to his employees, to, he's just, I don't know, I got a bad, you know, my wife's a psychotherapist, I don't know, she'd probably have a diagnosis for this guy, I don't know what the hell, <laughs> I got a bad what, what's, vibe. What, what's her diagnosis of you? Oh, well, I'm an, I'm an extrovert, I'm probably a bit narcissistic, not Trump-like, but, you know, I, I, I like, I'm, I'm, an, I'm on this podcast, so I like to hear myself talk, right? So, um, I don't quit, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm tenacious, um, but yeah, I don't know, she, she's been working on me for almost 34 years, and I think I'm a lost cause, so. That's funny, well, you've been married 34 years, so, so congratulations on that, you're definitely Thank doing you. something right. Um, well, just to... What advice would you give to young professionals getting married who want to stay married for 34 years and oh, more? Oh, God. <laughs> I thought you wanted to talk about stuff that I have expertise in. Um, <laughs> well, it sounds like you do because you've been married 34 years. So, yeah, so that's I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer. Uh, we're very different. 
and we've kind of figured it out, but I, I don't know if there's a, a generic answer. You know, I think you have to know who you are first. Like you got to be, we got married kind of very young and uh, we kind of grew up together and, you know, that that's can be challenging to do that because you sometimes end up being a different person down the road a little bit because of the growth and change and maturity or whatever, uh, which could be good or bad. Um, so I think maybe just know yourself, make sure you have that sense of self and confidence in who you are and, and, and find somebody who, you know, can respect that and, and, uh, maybe not the right word, but tolerate that. Cause I think that's important. I think, you know, if, if you're going to be, my, my wife and I are both essentially entrepreneurs. I mean, she's a psychotherapist, but she runs her own private practice and has no employees. She's kind of a sole practitioner. And, uh, and then there's of course me, who's, you know, been uh, basically up until joining this law firm, every paycheck that I ever received, I signed myself from 89 to, to 2012. So, you know, I think being an entrepreneur and being self-sufficient is a rocky road, you know, because you don't have that safety net and you need to have a partner who either thrives on that or buys into that and supportive of that. You know, an entrepreneur, I think an entrepreneurial spouse is a tough road. And if they don't have the stomach for it, it can be difficult. My wife yeah. sometimes says that people either have or do not have the roller coaster gene. Yeah. Now, it's, 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 it's a bit, it's true. Like it's, you know, literally, she doesn't like to get on roller coasters. But figuratively, you know, if your life is going to be a roller coaster, you better have the stomach for it. I think that you're right about you have to ensure that your spouse is comfortable without the safety net. Uh, I struggle with it myself with my wife being a pharmacist. So she's a professional health professional uh, like your wife. And she often doesn't have the stomach for it. You know, if we're going through a rough patch in business, she'll revert back to, you know, why didn't you become a doctor or a lawyer or, or some other profession with a secure salary? So you're right. That it's funny how you describe it, the roller coaster gene. I've never heard that before, but I think it's spot on. Well, that's um, I, I credit Lori Dennis. That's that's her phrase. Um, you know, one other observation that I would make, which for better or for worse, is that I think we're entering into an era of more unemployment or risk of unemployment because of all the things we talked about earlier in terms of disruption, like all these law clerks and lawyers and every other industry, like what are they going to do? So, you know, we're, we're, I read somewhere recently that we're in the age of entrepreneurship. Um, and that's kind of a nice way of saying like sink or swim, fend for yourself. And I think that's yeah. really what we're doing. You know, we're going through, I don't know if it's the age of entrepreneurship or it's the technology revolution or whatever you want to call it. You know, we went through the industrial revolution in, in the 19th century. Um, lots of people were dislocated. You know, there was mass movement from rural to urban and, you know, empires collapsed and all this stuff occurred because of or in part because of the industrial revolution. Well, we're now going through this information or technology revolution, and the movement of jobs is going from people to machines. Yep. And so, you know, we saw a glimpse of what can happen when there's sort of mass unemployment. When uh, 2008 came along, we had the crash and, you know, people 
took to the streets and Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Bay Street. Well, I wonder aloud, you know, as the economy changes, as these job opportunities change, where are these people going to get jobs? And are we at the risk of civil disobedience and and so on? And and you're hearing people like Elon Musk and others talking about, you know, guaranteed incomes, or I think Bill Gates talked about, you know, taxing the robots, which is kind of the other side of the, the same coin. Yeah. Um, so there are smart people kind of thinking about this and worried about this, and I worry about it too. And I think the bottom line on all of that is we, we're in, you know, whatever you want to call it, the entrepreneurial age or the gig economy. There's just going to be more and more people like you, like me, like others. And I was probably an early adopter. You know, I did, started in 1989. When I became an entrepreneur, uh, it was kind of a dirty word. Like if you were an entrepreneur, you were kind of like a con man, a hustler kind of person. Um, today it's like a badge of honor. I want to be Zuckerberg or I want to be Musk or, I, you know, that wasn't the case in 1989. Like my father thought I was nuts to leave a fancy law firm and all the security and start a business. Well, you know, this is like a, this is a juicy topic and there's a couple things I want to say about it. So the first is that, um, you know, you mentioned the jobs going away and being automated. Naval Ravikant, who I think you might know from, from the Valley, he started AngelList. Um, you know, he's, his statement was that eventually everyone is just going to work for, those, for themselves. Corporations are downsizing over time. This trend is not going away. Corporations will um, end up being super small in size and the jobs, like you say, are going to be automated. At the same time, this, this idea of corporatism, this idea that, um, you know, you go work for a corporation, you put your head down, you grind through your career, you work your way up to the C-suite, then you retire with a nice pension, those days are gone. Um, and the third th thing I'll say is that um, this idea of loyalty just doesn't exist anymore. You know, employees, especially millennials, are, are not loyal uh, to their employers unless uh, they feel unbelievably fulfilled and that they're rewarded both monetarily and um, in, in other ways. Um, and, and corporations, by the same token, are also not that loyal to, to their employees. So you have this yin and yang happening. Um, all the while, these jobs are being automated by technology. It's a really, really interesting time. And I, the, the, I agree. I agree. I, I, like it, I worry about it. I worry about it a lot. Trump is trying to make America great again. His vision of making America great again is turning the clock back to the 50s and the 60s, mm -hmm. where we have manufacturing jobs that pollute and coal and cars and steel. Well, that's not going to happen. I mean, Foxconn in China is talking about replacing a million workers with robots. So those jobs are never coming back to America. And Trump has promised his people, his base, a bill of goods that he just can't deliver on. Because the world trend, the global trend's going the other way. And yeah. they're all, like, these people are deluded. And I think it's dangerous because they're not actually addressing the real issue. You know, they should be teaching kids in school how to be entrepreneurs, how to be self-sufficient, how to sell, how to read a financial statement, how to bank, financing. Like, they don't, there's, there's none of that. Yeah, no, the, the education system is, is definitely uh, broken in many ways, uh, if not unbelievably archaic. Um, that's a topic for another day. It's, it's way too deep.
um, to talk about now with with such a with only a few minutes left. But I want to ask you, Jeff, quickly about your book. So um, shifting gears, uh, you are an author. You wrote a book called Lessons from the Edge. It's available on Amazon. Tell me about the book and who's the audience that you think would really benefit from the read. It's essentially a collection of stories by entrepreneurs of their biggest screw ups in business and the lessons they learned. Uh, we divide it into five chapters. One is kind of leadership issues. Yeah. Another is people, so dealing with employees and, and that sort of thing. A mm -hmm. chapter on partners, so mm -hmm. lots of problems with partners in businesses. Uh, a chapter on finance, so sales, banking, investors, stuff like that. And then the last was sort of the personal side, marriage, divorce, kids, stress, drug abuse, whatever. And um, and there's 50 stories and five chapters and 10 stories per chapter. And, and then the stories are in the, auth the entrepreneur's own words. And then Jan and I basically provided commentary as to what we thought the lessons were. And, and, and so uh, when you asked me earlier how applicable it is, you know, it's, we, we, the book came out in 2004, so we kind of missed, you know, we, we hit the first dot-com bubble, but we missed, like, everything you've seen since. Yeah. And, and, and it begs the question, you know, is there supposed to be a lessons from the technology edge or whatever? And, I mean, I'm sure there are lessons, but our lessons were pretty universal. And what I learned through this process is that people make the same stupid mistakes <laughs> generally. I mean, there may be, it's like, you know, I don't know how many stories there are that they can write books about or do movies about, you know, there's what they say, there's like a dozen or something. Well, it's kind of the same with entrepreneurs. They, there's kind of 50, maybe there's 60, maybe we miss some. There's pretty common mistakes. No, I mean, and, I think that, that you're, you're right there. It, it goes back to that. I mean, I'm also a member of EO uh, in, in Toronto and, you know, the forum format, there's a reason why it doesn't matter who in your forum is in what business vertical, right? The, the yes. businesses don't need to be in the same industry to get value from one another. Uh, the challenges are at a high level or general level are the same, regardless of whether or not you're running a technology company, you're in the fintech space, you're in the manufacturing sector, uh, or you're selling widgets out of a retail store. The, the, the problems are the same when you go up a level for those people that are listening that are either in a business partnership thinking about a business partnership um want to get out of a partnership what are the main red flags that you've seen that i guess are the i guess what i'm asking is what are the what are the reasons partnerships don't work out um that you've seen and what are what makes a good business partnership work in your experience so, yeah, it's, I, I actually do sort of a, a, a speech uh, here in town from time to time with a colleague. We call it uh, Partnerships, the Necessary Evil. And because, you know, people need partners because they lack resources, right? Because mm -hmm. if you could afford to hire all these people that you need and, and had the financial resources to buy all the stuff you need, you wouldn't need partners. So it gets driven really by this need for resources that you you don't have because you've got limited resources or limited experience or limited education or you know your skill set is this and you need that. <clears throat> so you got to partner with somebody, and um, 
people often jump into these things pretty quickly because they're so focused on the excitement of the opportunity and the dream of building a business and you know, the euphoria of you know the startup. And then they kind of get into the grind of what it really takes to start a business, run a business, sell, deal with people and employees and customers and all those things. And then the frictions arise and then all hell breaks loose. So, you know, to answer your question, I think the first and foremost thing is values. You know, you got to make sure that you share the same values. This is not a transaction. It's a relationship, right? So you can't hard bargain and, you know, one person win and one person lose and take a sort of a zero-sum game approach. It's kind of like a marriage, right? So it's a relationship. And if you don't share the same values, you don't share the same vision for the business, if you don't share the same work ethic, if you don't share the same timelines, you know, I had a partner once, I was in my 40s and he was in his late 50s, you know, he was probably going to Florida before me. So what does that do to our partnership? Um, you know, all of these issues that you got to think about and work out in advance um, and have the fight early to see how people respond and how people behave and, and whether they're fair and whether they're honorable and whether they have integrity. Um, those are the big issues. Um, you know, usually partners should be complementary as opposed to, you know, it's not a good idea to have two salespeople or two tech people or two, you know, it's, it, you want partners because they bring something to the table that you don't have. Yeah. So that, that, that I mean, there's, I can go on, but that, those no, but are sort of the big, the big ones. The core values thing, I think is such a good point, Jeff. And, um, almost you know, treating values before skills is, I think, probably um, a formula people get wrong. They probably look at skill set and they overlook the values piece, which I think is a huge mistake, uh, especially if you plan on being biz in business together for a long time. I, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I, I think, you know, like I said earlier, people are focused on the opportunity, the business, and they don't focus on each other. You know, it's again, it's kind of like that honeymoon period in a marriage. It's the sex is good. You can't, you know, you're finishing each other's sentences. You won't hang off the phone, you know, first, all that kind of silly stuff. Well, I mean, it's different in business, but there is that euphoria of the beginning and the excitement and the vision and, and that. And then you get down to like changing diapers <laughs> and doing dishes and the mundane part of running a business. And it can get, you know, if you don't work, you don't both roll up your sleeves, you don't compliment each other, you don't, you know, go back to back against all comers, then you can have problems. And uh, so I think it, you should, people jump into these partnerships way too quickly. The other thing I would say, because it comes up almost with every single one of our startup clients, and it, 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 they ask the question, you know, do we need a shareholders agreement now? How much would it cost? And of course, whatever I quote, they think it's too expensive or whatever. And, you know, we don't really know if we have a product yet. We don't know if we're going to get a customer yet. Like, why would we spend, you know, three, five thousand dollars or five thousand or whatever the number is on a shareholders agreement when I don't even know if I have a business yet? And that's a good point. Like, I, it's hard to argue that the, the counter argument is that it's usually better to work out 
these things in terms of the partnership and, and who's doing what and how you're going to relate to each other and, and the rights and powers and responsibilities that go into a shareholders agreement when everybody's getting along. Because once the knives come out and you start to resent each other or this guy didn't pull their weight or, or whatever the issue is, it's a lot harder to sit down in good faith to work out these details. And if you don't have a shareholders agreement, then there's a number of things that can arise during your business that you won't be able to deal with because you don't have a shareholders agreement. For example, if you want to sell, you know, you own 80% and you got a partner with 20% and you get a buyer who wants to buy 100% of the shares, how do you compel your partner to sell their shares? I mean, yeah. and that's just one example. I mean, you know, your partner gets a divorce. Now your part, now your partner's with that bitch, his wife, you know, like, yeah. so, I mean, there's a, I can give you a 25, 30, a hundred different scenarios where it's a good idea to have a shareholders agreement. And yeah, so I think there's, there, there's almost like a happy medium though. I think, I think, you know, I think your point's very valid. I think at the same time that, you know, MVP um, that, 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 that those kids are producing that they may or may not sell is also a valid point. Like I think it's, you know, there's, there's this happy medium. Maybe it's in the first 12 months where they're trying to validate. Listen, the MVP I'll give you another say, count. Okay. Yep. We, we may need this because now we're, you know, we're, we've got validation. We're out on Kickstarter. We're doing an Indiegogo campaign. We've, we've raised 40 grand. Now it's something, right? It's gone from nothing to something. It might make sense to get a shareholders agreement done. So you're right, and that all makes sense, provided everybody's playing nice in the sandbox at that time. Right. 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 So if you've done all this and you found out that loser that owns 20% of your company didn't pull his or her weight, didn't, you know, doesn't have that level of commitment, can't afford to stay on because they got bills to pay and is going to leave. How do you get that per or is just pissed at you because you said something or did something and they're mad? How do you get them to the table and negotiate something when you don't have that good faith? So, like, there's no right answer here. I'm just, you know, it's like having sex without contraception. Sometimes accidents happen. Yeah, messy divorce, messy situation, and yeah, no, it's it's uh, or the business blows up because I mean, look, you saw the movie Social Network, right? That's the yeah. Facebook movie. Yeah, well, you remember the twins? Yes, of course. Well, that's kind of what this is about, right? They didn't have an agreement about who's doing what, who owns what, and they claimed, and Zuckerberg had to pay them, I think, sixty million dollars to go away. So. You know, it's a good idea to deal with this stuff before there's lots of money on the table and people get their backs up and or get greedy or have leverage over you because you need them to sign a piece of paper to get an investor in. And now they say, OK, I want another five percent or I want this or I want money or I want you, you just you know, you don't want to be in a position where somebody's holding leverage over you. I wonder what those guys are doing, by the way, just as a last random question, those those twins. What are they up to? Do you know? I don't know, but I heard something, actually, their name, I, I made this point in a meeting yesterday, and somebody said something about blockchain or Bitcoin or, I don't know, so I, I, I don't know. But, but <laughs> they're, the, they're, they're, uh, they've gone back to rowing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, uh, I don't know. So, so look, you know, I, I always say that that Facebook movie, Social Network, is actually a law movie. Everybody thinks it's a story of Facebook, but it's a, it's a cautionary tale about getting your ducks in a row from a legal perspective before you get too far into this because sometimes you just can't fix it later because you got issues. Yeah, spoke, spoken like a true lawyer. Um, okay, okay, Jeff, thank you. Uh, this has been 
actually a very enlightening hour for me. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate you taking the the uh, 60 minutes, and we'll be in touch. Great. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. All, all the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.